Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. We're continuing our series in 2 Samuel in chapter 4. And so if you would open up your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 4. If you're in the Red Pew Bible, it is page 4, excuse me, page 257. Um, Just to give you background uh, for the chapter that we're reading today to remind us of what's going on. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, while Saul is still the first king of Israel, the Lord tells Samuel the prophet to go and anoint this shepherd boy David from Bethlehem to be the next king of Israel. Uh, By the time we get to today's passage, several years have gone by. King Saul has died. Uh, if you look up here on the map, uh, you may remember that, that David gets news of Saul's death and he is in this area in Ziklag and the Lord calls David to go to Hebron. And so David goes to Hebron where he's anointed the king of the southern half of Israel, which is called Judah, which is there in the gray. Uh, David seeks to peacefully and diplomatically extend his kingdom over the northern area, which is the green area, uh, by through, through really gracious and compassionate uh, means. Uh, but the northern kingdom is resistant to that. Uh, the northern kingdom has a general named Abner. Again, if you, if you get confused by the names, it's printed there in your bulletin, uh, center at the bottom. But they have a, a general named Abner who has taken over the northern uh, kingdom of Israel. And he has installed a puppet king, uh, which is the son of Saul named Ishbosheth. And so um, we come to 2 Samuel chapter 2 uh, a couple weeks ago, and Abner uh, leads the troops from uh, Mahanaim over to Gibeon uh, within spitting distance of Judah. And he's antagonizing his countrymen and starts this civil war. And so David's troops come up and they fight against him. And, and sadly, many of the people of God kill each other that day. Uh, we get to chapter 3 and it gets even messier. Um, Abner... Uh, Again, the commander of the north uh, is confronted by King Ishbosheth of the north uh, on his immorality and his overreach of authority. And then if you look just real quickly in chapter 3, verse 9, it says God, uh, Abner responds to to this confrontation by defecting. He says, God do so to Abner, talking about himself, and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah. And so Joab knows that Israel is supposed to be under David's kingship. And then we get down to verse 17 of chapter three. And it says, And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past, you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then bring it about, for the Lord has promised David. And so all of Israel really wants David to be king over them. And then Abner goes to David in verse 21, and he says this. He says, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my Lord, the king, that they may make a covenant with you 
so that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. And so everything seems to be lining up for David, for the promise of God, that, that David is going to now take over the northern kingdom of Israel because Abner, the general, is going back and he's going to gather the elders of the northern tribes and he's going to say, okay, we are ready to make this covenant and to anoint David as king over all Israel. But then there is a major hiccup. Something tragically goes wrong. As Abner goes back north to gather the elders to bring them under David's kingship, Abner is called back by Joab, the commander of David's army. And when he comes back, Joab kills him out of revenge because Abner had killed his Joab's brother in battle. And so now we seem to be back at square one. Ishbosheth is in control of the northern kingdom of Israel, and Abner is not coming back to bring the two kingdoms together. And so what now? It seems like one thing after the next thwarts the plan of God and David's kingship over all of Israel. And the question is, can God fulfill his promise? How will God fulfill his promise? Will David become king over all Israel? And if so, how is that going to happen? These are the questions that we're are going to be addressed that we should be asking going in to chapter four. Uh, we're gonna cover all of chapter four today and go into the first three verses of chapter five. Uh, but I just wanna start by reading verses five through eight in chapter four today uh, to give us the context of what's going on. And in this chapter, we're introduced to, to some brothers, to two brothers. One name is Rechab and the other is Bana. And the, I think this is the only chapter in the whole Bible they appear, but they're, they're instrumental in the story. Uh, that we're going to read here in 2 Samuel. So let's look at 2 Samuel 4. I know we're jumping in midway. Uh, maybe you'll see why later. We're at 2 Samuel 4, verse 5 through 9. And again, it's page 257 in the Red Bible. 2 Samuel 4, 5. Now the sons of Ramon, the Barathite, Rechab and Bana, set out. And about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth, again, the king of the north, as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat. And they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Bana, his brother, escaped. These next verses go into greater detail in the same story. Verse 7. When they came into the house as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night. And brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. Let's pray. Lord, once again, we hit a messy chapter full of uh, bloodshed, betrayal. And, and while it seems so hard to come to these chapters, we also know this is, this is what our world is like, that our world is very messy and it seems out of control many times. And yet, God, through your word, you remind us that what seems out of control to us is within your control. And so, God, pray, uh, even as we face today, even as we face tomorrow, we are reminded that you are sovereign over all things and that your plan and purposes cannot be thwarted. Remind us of that great hope we have. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Do the ends justify the means? This is a question people have been asking really since the beginning of time. Do the ends, meaning the results, justify the means, which are the actions to get to those results? This phrase is usually used when someone wants to do something that is maybe immoral or illegal to accomplish something they believe to be good or noble. For example, maybe you are looking for a job and you want employment so you can provide for yourself and so you can provide for your family. You find a job that you will think you will be a perfect fit for and it's good, it's a good and and great thing to have employment to provide for yourself. But you have this job and and you notice that you don't quite meet the qualifications or your resume is not as strong as you might want it to be. So in the application process, you leave a few things out that would make you look not so good, and you embellish a few figures that will make you look better. Do the ends justify the means? Do the ends of wanting employment justify the means of maybe changing the application a little bit to favor you in ways that aren't completely true? Or or maybe you're a student, and, and you want good grades so that you can get into a good college or get a good job. Those are good ends, good goals, good desires, the problem is you are very busy and you are stressed out and you have a lot going on. And so you figured, you know what, it's not so bad just to take some off of this website, copy and paste it into my paper because I just don't have the time. Do the ends justify the means? Maybe you're lonely and you really want friends, which is a great thing. But in order to get some friends, you believe you have to join them in some things that you know are not pleasing to the Lord. Do the ends justify the means? Political season is coming, elections are coming up. You have a candidate that you know that you're certain will be the best candidate. And instead of just vigorously debating the topics at hand, you start to slip into slandering and gossiping about the other candidate so that your candidate will get elected. Do the ends justify the means. After all, you have to break a few eggs to make an omelet, right? It's easier to ask for forgiveness than for permission. And so do ends justify means? Should we pursue God's purposes in ungodly ways? This is the question really that we see highlighted in this passage. And what we will discover first is that a man or woman after God's own heart, like David, must resist pursuing godly ends through ungodly means. Look back at verse one with me, if you would. Chapter four, verse one. It says, when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed and all Israel was dismayed. Again, Ishbosheth is the king of the northern kingdom. He has kept David from becoming king over all of Israel. And we are reminded here that Ishbosheth is not the type of king Israel wanted or needed. Ishbosheth was a cowardly king. He did not go out to battle with his father. He stayed home. And he was a puppet for Abner, this general. And now that Abner is dead, he is scared to death because he doesn't know how to run a kingdom and he doesn't know how to protect himself. Furthermore, verse 1 says that Israel was dismayed because they are now stuck with this incompetent king, and they wanted David to be their king. Verse 2 continues, says, now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Bana, and the name of the other, Rechab, sons of Rimen, a man of Benjamin from Beroth. 
For Baroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Barathites fled to Gitaim and have been sojourners there to this day. So the writer of 2 Samuel is asking a question that you probably care nothing about, but the original audience did, which was, how could a family from Baroth be considered Benjamites? Verse 4, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now, as we read on in this chapter, you'll see this verse seems very out of place. Almost like, why is this even here? But it's actually here for a very important reason. Uh, What we learn, again, if you remember, Saul and his son Jonathan died in battle. News came to the household of Jonathan and his five-year-old son who had a nanny took and ran away with him because he was probably heir apparent to the throne and knew that he would be hunted after by the Philistines. And as they are running away, he falls, somehow hits his spine, and he is lame. And the reason why it's important to the context of this passage is because a lame person would not be eligible to be king in that day, right or wrong. The kings were meant to lead their people into battle against foreign armies, and a lame person could not do that. And so that's why Meshibetheth, Meshibetheth, that, you know what I'm saying, you know why he, you know why he is not a threat to David's kingship, but Ishbosheth is. So verse five continues. It says, now the sons of Ramon the Barathite, Rechab and Bana set out, and about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Bana, his brother, escaped. Again, now it goes into more detail. Verse 7 When they came into the house as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. So to bring someone's head was conclusive proof that they really were dead. Continues. And they said to the king, Here's the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. And then they said, The Lord, the Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. Rechab and Banan knew the Lord's will, as did David, as well as did Judah, as well did northern Israel. They all seemed to know the will of the Lord was that David would be the king over all of Israel. And when the commander Abner was killed, this was a major disappointment, a major roadblock in that plan. And so these men decide to take matters into their own hands and to assassinate the king in his sleep. They were seeking godly ends, which would be David's kingship through ungodly means of murder. While you may be here today and you're not thinking about murder, hopefully you're not thinking about murder, Pursuing godly ends through ungodly means is something we are constantly tempted by. I listed out a few earlier in uh, the sermon, but, but even on a corporate level, in the church, uh, there are many churches who have a godly goal of extending Christ's kingdom in the world. 
but they do it through ungodly means of compromising the word of God. They stay away from certain passages that, that people might find offensive or they don't want to talk about sin, they don't want to talk about repentance because they're afraid that they will turn people away. Or maybe churches that are, that are growing and booming have volunteers and staff that they treat like commodities. And if they get in the way, they just throw them off the bus and run them over with the bus because they are extending God's kingdom. There are many churches who have justified ungodly means of compromising God's word to point to the godly ends of extending Christ's kingdom. And certainly that is a temptation for us as well, but even also on a personal level. You know, I have a godly desire that my children will grow up to be peacemakers, to be charitable, to be sacrificial, and that they would start doing that with one another. And one of the things that drives me crazy is when my kids fight against one another. And a godly means to this godly end would be to take my kids aside to talk to them about their heart, about their actions, about the Lord, about the gospel. This would be a godly ends to the godly means of making my kids become more godly people. But I find it much more efficient and expedient to ignore their heart and simply yell at my kids to stop yelling at one another. Anyone know what I'm talking about? It's so tempting on a daily basis to pursue this godly end of, of growing my kids in godliness through ungodly means of simply coming down hard on them and yelling at them. Why is this so tempting? Why do we try to accomplish godly ends with ungodly means like these brothers did in this story? And I think the answer is actually buried here in verse 9. David is a great example of, of waiting on the Lord and, and doing godly, having godly means to pursue a godly end. And this is what he says in response to them. David answered, Rechab and Bana, his brother, the sons of Rimen the Barathite, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. In a little bit, David's going to rebuke them for their murder. We'll study that in the next, ver in the next point. But remember this. Remember that David... Uh, was hunted by Saul. Saul was trying to kill him for seven years. David had multiple opportunities to kill King Saul to defend his life and assume the throne. But David did not want to pursue the godly end through ungodly means of killing the Lord's anointed. And what allowed David to wait on the Lord, what allowed David, a man that's after God's own heart, to resist pursuing godly ends through ungodly means was David's firm belief that the Lord, his Redeemer, is alive. And David testifies in this passage how this living Redeemer Lord has been and will be faithful to deliver David out of every adversity to accomplish his purposes and his promises. And so, Christian, I have an important question for you. Do you believe, do you really believe that your Lord lives? Do you believe that your Redeemer is alive and is active? Can you testify how God has delivered you out of or through adversity time and time again? Christian, we can resist ungodly means to godly ends, and we can wait on the Lord for for him to accomplish his purposes because our Redeemer is alive, because the Lord is mighty, and because God is for us, and so we can wait on him to accomplish his purposes, and we can simply seek to be faithful in the meantime. 
And so just to recap, a man or woman after God's own heart must resist pursuing godly ends through ungodly means. But they must also rebuke publicly ungodly means of pursuing godly ends. Now by this, I'm not saying that if you know, your, your, your son or your daughter, or your husband or your wife uh, do something sinful that you need to you know, put it on the Twitter or on Face Chat or wherever publicly to announce to everyone that they messed up. Private sins deserve a private correction, but public sin deserves a public rebuke of that sin and public repentance over that sin. And that's what we see in this passage today. Let's, let's start back at verse 8. It says, And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. So they're expecting David to be ecstatic that they had killed Ishbosheth. But we see something quite different. Verse 9. But David answered Rechab and Bana, his brother, the sons of Remian, the Barathite, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. I'm not sure I would consider that a reward, um, but his reward was execution. Verse 11, how much more then, when wicked men have killed a righteous man and his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? Notice here, David is aware that they killed Ishbosheth in his bed. Evidently, these brothers shared it with David without shame, thinking that David would be proud of their crafty schemes. But David calls Ishbosheth a righteous man. Uh, this certainly doesn't mean Ishbosheth was a sinless man. It doesn't even mean Ishbosheth was a believer, but it meant that Ishbosheth did not deserve to be put to death. He didn't deserve to be assassinated, to be murdered. The, the crime was not justified. And David says, Hey, if one guy came to me uh, and said he killed King Saul, who, who was asking to be put to death out of mercy, and I executed him for murder, how much more? Should I enact justice upon you who killed a king while he was asleep? Verse 12 continues. And David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet, the means by which they committed the assassination, and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. This was a sign of respect for the dead. You know, it's interesting in this passage, it mentions Rechab and Banai are sons of Remian three times. Three times in about 10 verses, they, they give this long, drawn out description of them. And it's probably because this was recorded like a legal proceeding in which they were being tried for murder and for assassination. And these men are found guilty again by their own profession. And so David enacts justice on them and puts them up on the wall for everyone to see. For everyone to see that David was not behind the murder of Ishbosheth. For everyone to see publicly that this is not okay. That it's not okay to murder someone. That it's not okay to assassinate the king. That it's not okay to ex expedite God's plans through ungodly means. If you are here today and you claim the name Christian, you need to be ready to publicly 
repent and publicly rebuke over those who wear the name Christian have done and are doing. Every year, our denomination gets together for something called a general assembly. In 2016, there was an overture or a motion uh, that was passed in which we confessed and repented as a denomination of the historic racism in our denomination during the civil rights era and continual racial sins of ourselves and our fathers. These sins included segregated worship services, exclusion of people from membership based on their race, discouragement of interracial marriages, participation of some members in our denomination in supremacist organizations, and general failure to love our brother. Now, I know many Christians today are concerned that everything is being labeled as racism, and I agree we have to be very careful with that, and it's probably gone too far in many circles, but this should not keep us of repenting of the actual racism that has existed in our history and even in our hearts They were publicly repenting and rebuking public sin. Again, if you're here today and you claim to be a Christian, you need to be able to publicly rebuke the sins of the church. To say of brothers and sisters in Christ who have have maybe abused their authority and their power, who, who, who have abused people in the church, who have, who have maybe laundered money or done some other corrupting things, you need to be able to say, yeah, what they said was right and good most of the time, but what they did was wrong. It is wrong that they did those things in the church. It's wrong that they did those things at all. And so when your neighbor hears again of a, of a ministry or of a pastor doing sinful, wicked things, it is your obligation to say, that is wrong that Christians often don't represent the Christ that they follow very well. That Jesus is gentle and lowly, meek and mild, loving and compassionate, gracious and just, unlike the Christians were in that setting. We must publicly repent and rebuke of the sins of the church because our Redeemer lives. Because people need to know that he is so much better than his followers and that he is worthy of their worship. Silence, silence can be taken as affirmation for the sins of the church. And so we must publicly rebuke the sins of the church for the peace, purity, and witness of the church. And so again, a man or woman after God's own heart must resist pursuing godly ends through ungodly means. We must rebuke publicly ungodly means of pursuing godly ends. And finally, we must receive patiently God's ends through godly means. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3, and and as I first read this, one of the words that jumped off the page to me, at least in verses 1 to 2, is the word you, and uh, and I think you'll see it here as well. So 5, 1 through 3. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought us. In Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. You know, we talked about this last week. David is certainly no perfect king, he's very messed up in many ways. But I think there are few models in the scripture that show us better what it looks like to wait upon the Lord. That show us 
how to not pursue godly ends through ungodly means. Remember, David had been waiting on his kingship for a long time. At around the age of 12, Samuel came and he said, you are going to be the next king of Israel. He waited 18 years until Saul died to be anointed the king of Judah. And then he waited an additional seven years to be anointed the king over all of Israel. In all, David waited 25 years for God to fulfill his promise through many ups and downs to make him king over all of Israel. 25 years David waited without trying to expedite the process or taking over the plan or using ungodly means to fulfill God's ends. And now after 25 years, David receives God's promises. No wonder David wrote in Psalm 27, wait for the Lord. (laughs) Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. I don't know about you, but I find it hard to wait on the Lord. I find it hard to wait for a hot dog to heat up in the microwave. I find it hard to wait. Abraham waited 25 years after the promise of God for his son to come through Sarah. Waiting on the Lord is a part of the Christian life. And waiting on the Lord does not mean that we are lazy or that we are passive. It is an active, faithful waiting on the Lord, praying and seeking the will of the Lord and the mind of Christ in the midst of our waiting. You know, one small area that I'm waiting on the Lord right now is for physical healing. I have this nerve pain going on uh, on my backside, won't get too specific. And, and for about four months, uh, I've just been suffering through it. And sometimes it's just completely debilitating. Uh, sometimes it's so bad, I, just, I can hardly move. And, and it, makes, it makes it difficult to put on my socks in the morning. Um, and it's kept me from doing a lot of fun activities that I love to do. Um, to be honest, it's also come in handy a few times. So we had a big, heavy cooler yesterday, and I'm like, hey, Corbin, my nerves bother me. Like, can you pick that up? And, you know, oh, the dishes need to be done. Sorry, my nerve is hurting me. But um, seriously, though, uh, I pray for the Lord to take that pain away, and I wait on the Lord to take that pain away. But that does not mean inactivity. I don't just sit back and, and wait. I also need to be faithful to do my stretches and exercises to help corrected. Some of you are here today waiting on the Lord on more serious physical, psychological, emotional, or relational healing. And it is so tempting to throw ourselves this pity party of woe is me. We're called to wait on the Lord for he is good. His purposes are right and he promises he will heal all of his people. Maybe not in this world, But for sure in the world to come, he will heal us. He has promised to do so in his timing. And we know this to be true because our Redeemer lives. And he has told us that he is coming and there is a day that will be here where there will be no more suffering, no more pain, and no more death. Some of you are here waiting on the Lord to give you a spouse who loves Jesus. And it is so tempting to try to expedite the process, to compromise your Christian values in order to just take anyone with a pulse. And yet the Lord says, wait on me. I will be faithful. Even if you do not find a spouse in this lifetime, God is enough. Your redeemer lives. I don't know about you, but this inflation has been very, very stretching for us as a family. Some of you are here waiting on financial provision, and it's so, top to, it's so tempting to compromise your faith or your ethics or your priorities to earn an extra buck. 
Maybe, maybe work on Sundays and you, you can't commune with the people of God and worship God. And so you're compromising to try to make this thing happen. And he says, wait on me, wait on the Lord and he will provide for your redeemer lives. And so we are called as a man or woman after God's, God's own heart to receive patiently God's ends in God's timing through godly means. Let me end with this. Um, another popular saying that you've probably heard is good things come to those who wait. Uh, it's actually an English proverb uh, to describe the benefits of, of being patient, right? And so, you know, mom is making cookies and she's putting together the dough and you just want to go and eat all the dough. And she's like, no, 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 right? Like they got to be cooked. Good things come to those who wait. Or maybe you put your money in the stock market and it goes up or it goes down and you want to take it all out and your financial planner is like, no, 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 no. Good things come to those who wait, right? Or it's Thanksgiving Day and, and you smell the turkey and it's about ready, but you're just starving. And so, so you decide to fill your stomach with those empty crackers and good things come to those who wait, right? This is not a phrase that comes from the Bible, but it is a concept that we see in the Bible, specifically that good things come to those who wait upon the Lord, and we know this to be true because in John, Genesis chapter 3, the Lord made a promise to his people. The Lord promised that there would be a day that he would send a descendant of the woman to come and crush the head of Satan. In 2 Samuel 7, as we'll read in a few weeks, the Lord promises to David that he will raise up his offspring and he will establish a kingdom forever for the people of God. In Isaiah 53, the people of God are told that a Savior would come and he would be pierced for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities. And upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we would be healed. And so for hundreds and hundreds of years, the people of God waited, hoping, wondering if God would fulfill his promise, hoping and wondering if God would send the Messiah, hoping and wondering if God would bring his kingdom through his king. And then many people during that time did not wait upon the Lord. They chased after other gods, other idols that led to their own destruction. But good things came to those who waited upon the Lord. And in Luke chapter 2, angels appeared to the shepherds and says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Christian, we have a wonderful Savior who in some ways pursued ungodly ends through ungodly means. The ungodly ends that our Savior came to pursue was you and me. We often do ungodly things, don't we? And yet Jesus came to pursue us, and he pursued us through the ungodly means of the cross. Not that he was the one who executed the, the, the cross and, and the ungodly things, but he was the victim of it. We are the ungodly ends that he pursued through the ungodly means of the cross so that we could be with our king forever and for always. Jesus, our king, turned the ungodly cross and the hateful shame of it into a godly symbol of uncomprehensible love. And he turned the ungodly people into the people of God who are the beloved of the Lord holy and righteous. Good things come to those who wait. And even now, we as the people of God are in a stage of waiting, waiting once again for Christ the King to come. 
And we know that he will come again because he promised it before and he came once. He has promised and he will come again. 2 Peter 3 says this. The scoffers will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, nothing has changed. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. According to his promise, we are waiting. We are waiting for new heavens and a new earth. I don't know about you, but there are many days I'm like, Jesus, would you just come back? Could you just come back today? But Jesus is waiting. Because there are yet more, maybe you here today, to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And so we cling to his promise, just as the saints did of the Old Testament, that good things come to those who wait upon the Lord. Those who wait upon the Lord, who trust in Christ for their salvation, will get the goodness of heaven for all eternity. As we wait, we are called to live out our hope and faith, not by pursuing godly ends through ungodly means, but by seeking to be faithful to God in all things, acknowledging as King David did, that our Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. Let's pray. Lord God, we come today confessing that we don't like waiting on you. We like to take things, we like to take the bull by the horn. We like to do things that maybe are ungodly to accomplish your purposes in our life, to get to to good things, to better things. And so God, we come repenting of that sin and, and trusting that Christ has taken on that sin upon himself. And so Lord, we are so joyful. We are so joyful that Jesus has come, the 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 only godly one who has ever lived, the only sinless one who has taken on our sin and paid for it in full upon the cross. And now we wait. And we pray, God, that you would help us to wait with great faith, with great patience, with great joy for Christ to come again. We pray for your help to do this. In Jesus' name, amen.